meditation, your spiritual practice should not just be a way to reduce stress, which it can, but your spiritual practice should also lead you to uh, a state of greater contentment, getting from your life what you want from your life. Um, Up until the 1970s, most of the clinical research that went into subjective well-being was pretty much into negative emotions and negative pathologies, which meant they studied incidents of depression, suicidal ideation, despair, uh, addictions, but there wasn't a lot of studies into what made people happy and content. And in So uh, in the 19, late 1970s, 80s, Martin Seligman and the positive psychologists started developing what they call baseline happiness tests that were uh, set up to uh, research and establish what are the underlying factors of human happiness. And uh, one of the first things these surveys and tests started to establish is what's called the hedonic treadmill, which is essentially that, unlike what uh, people tend to believe, uh, happiness is not a matter of accumulating wealth. It's not a matter of accumulating uh, extreme amounts of goods, uh, accumulating uh, material objects. The hedonic treadmill pretty much establishes that once you get your most basic needs met just for the foreseeable future, not for the rest of your life, but just for the foreseeable future, if you have shelter, clothing, enough to combat the cold, food, enough nutrition to keep the body going, uh, and medicine for when you're sick. If you've got those four things, what the Buddha called the requisites, then accumulating wealth, objects, fame, recognition, uh, beyond those basic requisites will not, I repeat, will not make you any happier wonderful study they did of people who won the lottery and this study was repeated um, a couple of times and they found that after uh, people addressed if they were uh, if they were below the poverty line once they managed to establish secure housing for themselves that would be the bump but any there was no additional bump for any additional amount of wealth. And in fact, if people already had those issues taken care of before they won the lottery, they would have absolutely no lasting effect in their level of contentment, the fact that they came into wealth. Just having shelter, food, clothing, and medication. Now, the question then becomes, if it's not the uh, 
uh, accumulation of power, reputation, fame, wealth, um, those what the Buddha called the worldly winds. What does bring about a bump, an elevation in human contentment? And the studies, including the World Happiness Report, there is such a thing, I love that, uh, the World Happiness Report and the baseline studies uh, documented there's two principal factors that uh, people who have very high levels of contentment have in common that people who don't have high levels of happiness don't have. One, lots of secure, reliable connections with other people. And by which we mean people that you can go to when you're having an emotional struggle, a difficult experience, and you can talk to that person and express the feelings and they can hear it. And instead of judging you or trying to fix or get rid or solve your problems, they can create a safe container where you can share the experience and feel normalized. In other words, when people just listen and take you in and mirror your emotions, what it does is it normalizes your experience. It makes you feel less unique or isolated or alone. And that's not something that can be done through words. Simply saying, oh yeah, I, I've done, I know what that's all about. I know what you're talking about. Don't worry. <laughs> that doesn't do anything. Uh, the right hemisphere, which creates the feeling of uh, being uh, met, connected with, doesn't really go by language. It goes by facial expressions, tone of voice, simple exchanging of glances. So that's one thing that makes human beings feel more content and secure. Having what the clinical psychologist Robin Dunbar calls B people in our life. A people are the significant others. You, you shtup, maybe. <laughs> Your significant others. I had to throw in shtup. It was a shtup opportunity, and I didn't, I didn't rise above it. Uh, so the shtup person in your life. But the B people are the people that you see once a week, maybe at your meetings, or you know, a close friend that you, you hang out with, and you share the uh, of feelings that are going on, and you don't, you can have a safe connection where you don't feel that they're just going to glibly say something like. Well, I don't know why you're complaining to me. Just get a different job, you know. What's the problem? So that's factor number one. And factor number two is we need meaningful work. It turns out that uh, even if you find your work fascinating, if you don't believe it's helping, it making the world a better place, it's not to the benefit of other people, then uh, it's not going to give you a great elevation of mood or happiness. But they found that people who, were, who worked with other people, who helped other people, even though they didn't have much fame or recognition or financial reward, tended to be far happier and more content than people who made a lot of dough. There was a famous study where they compared a, a single white men living in San Diego who are upper middle class with poor black women living in Buffalo. 
And most of the clinical psychologists assumed that a single white rich man would win in the contentment race, but they were trounced because the poor black women actually tended to be members of church groups where they were deeply connected and seeing their friends and reporting their feelings on a daily basis, whereas the white guys in San Diego were spending all their time working and consuming. And so they experienced misery. Why does that make me so happy to say that? <laughs> That's wrong of me. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. So, um, all right, so you get the idea. That's, uh, now let's hold that in our minds for a second, and then what I'd like us to do is bear something else in mind. There was a very recent study by two Harvard psychologists Matthew Killingsworth and Daniel Gilbert, and they wrote a study called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind, and they found that people are happiest when they're engaged with the world, fully aware of what's going on around them, uh, connected with all the sensations around them in what neuroscientists call task-positive mode. And they found in this huge, massive study thousands of people that when people are lost in thought, when they've drifted away from present time awareness and they get caught up in their own uh, thinking, what happens is they suffer. So when they call up people and they ask, are you happy? And then they'd ask, what are you doing? They found out that people again and again and again were doing things like surprise, having sex, uh, some playing video games, some walking outside in nature, some, they were engaged, fully engaged, using often their hands, gardening, drawing, playing an instrument, scored very high. What scores very low? Sitting in front of a computer daydreaming. Guess what? It turns out we spend 50% of our lives lost in thought, actively creating our own suffering. Now, why is that? Well, let me read you this quote by them. It's actually worthwhile. It's the summary of the report. A human mind is a wandering mind, and a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. The ability to think about what is not happening is a cognitive achievement that comes at an enormous emotional cost. Mind-wandering is an excellent predicator of our unhappiness. So, what happens is, when we abandon the present for thoughts, ruminations, fantasies, it turns out that the human mind has what's called negativity bias. Thoughts were, and the ability to visualize things that haven't happened were set up as a survival tool that were, was very useful for us a hundred thousand years ago on the African plains when there were predators and roving packs of other people that probably wanted to kill us as well. So what we could do is visualize the worst case possible outcomes, dire 
dire possibilities, and that was probably a survival advantage. But now that we've come quite a long way since then, and we're not in any great danger most of the time of being killed, eaten, speared, impaled, beheaded, beheaded. don't forget that one, <laughs> trampled by wild boars, which actually happens a lot in the polycanon. Uh, so this ability to visualize the worst shit that can happen to us or have endless to-do lists of things that we haven't done or get lost in thoughts about all the stuff we haven't accomplished or worrying about what other people think about us. None of these thought processes anymore serve us or give us an evolutionary advantage. In fact, now they come, as Gilbert and Killingsworth said, as a significant psychological burden. So why, meanwhile, in the present moment, we are surrounded by vast resources that can make us content. We can see all the security and safety, the people that we feel connected with around us. We can see opportunities to uh, keep track of things that are beautiful or unique or interesting. We can uh, open up into engaged activities that can be actually quite pleasant. We can uh, work on creative endeavors. We can get caught up in the splendor of things that are natural. Anyway, there's a lot of shit we can do if we're present. So why do we abandon the present moment in favor of uh, ideations that at first might seem pleasant, but almost invariably get pulled towards fear, dark outcomes, self-centered ideations, needless comparisons between ourselves and others, despairing self-criticism, well, generally, the mechanism is quite simple. According to the great psychologist Winnicott and to the Buddha in what he called dependent co-rising, both said the exact same thing. Basically, what happens is in life, we experience difficult emotional experiences, right and left. It happens on a frequent level where we become agitated, uncomfortable, frustrated, fearful, um, despairing, lonely, bored. We have an emotional state, and before we know it, we abandon the body where we feel these emotions and we seek the comfort of our thoughts. The Buddha said that body feelings precede thoughts. Winnicott said the same. In other words, we learn very early in life, according to the child psychologist Lev Vygotsky, Yes, I know that name. I don't know why, but... Uh, I don't know why I'm doing this either. This is weird. <laughs> this got away from me. It's supposed to be... I was going to say at three, and I don't know what, why this would have anything to do with three. You know, when we're three... Uh, <laughs> we start seeking the shelter of our thoughts over our physical experience. Children find the body very difficult to control, very unwieldy. Feelings that arise in the body for children, like loneliness, 
or abandonment or frustration or anger are very, very difficult for children to hold. So they tend to very quickly learn to get, to dissociate essentially, to become captivated by thoughts as an escape from the felt. So very early on in life we begin to realize that our narrative faculties provide us with an illusory refuge from feeling our embodied feeling. So we're trying to avoid feeling our emotional experience. And it's understandable when we're very, very young, if somebody does something that feels unsafe, they dis- if a parent disconnects from us, if uh, somebody uh, becomes rejecting, if other kids in a schoolyard shame us, if we become ridiculed, Whatever we're experiencing, the emotions that arise are extremely painful for children to be with. They can feel like annihilation. And so the child will quickly go off into a fantasy realm. And as adults, we can begin to do this automatically. We develop a set of what's called defense mechanisms. And all of these defense mechanisms have one thing in common to push away our, the feeling that's going on in the body and to pull us out, either out into the world or up into our thoughts. Sometimes when we're lonely, we'll turn on the television or go on Facebook for a pseudo-connection with people who aren't actually there. Sometimes we'll, when we feel powerless or overwhelmed by life, We'll go on Amazon to buy something we don't need to get rid of the feeling of loss of control and being overwhelmed. Or we might uh, get caught up in a million different addictive strategies meant to get rid of our feelings because we train ourselves to believe we can't handle... You can't handle your feelings! That was my... Pacino. I don't know why. No, not... Is that... Yeah. That was Pacino? Nicholson. Oh, Pacino is every time I try to get out, they pull me back in. And and then Nicholson goes, you can't handle it. So that was my... I'm going to do that again. You can't handle your... I don't know what I'm doing. All right. You can't handle your feelings. That's what we've come to believe. And so it becomes fast, rapid. We're not even aware of how quickly we take flight. The moment we feel lonely, we can just feel that impulse, and before we know it, the, the moment we see somebody losing interest in us and they're aware, their attention is wandering, we can suddenly abandon saying something truthful and go into a lie to keep their attention. We can start exaggerating. We can be so quickly activated and abandon what's being felt, the unease, the sadness, the sorrow, times of anger, we can immediately try to throw tantrums because we don't want to feel the anger. We can, uh, in times of, uh, when we're confused, we can seek immediate, false, quick, fast solutions. So, you get the idea. Um... Every skill that's important in our life that we've ever learned, though, 
requires us to stay present and sit with difficult emotions as they arise. I'll give you an example. I was in my late 40s when I learned how to skateboard. This was a profoundly stupid idea, but I did it anyway. And why did I do it in my late 40s? Well, because I was completely ungainly uh, in my teens, and I was scared of, as a teenager, a young punk, doing anything that looked ungainly or uncool. I couldn't handle those feelings of embarrassment. But by the time I became a 47-year-old overweight Buddhist teacher, I couldn't give a fuck. So, but I noticed as I was falling all over the place when I got on the skateboard and 10-year-olds were laughing at me to the point of tears, a significant degree of, of, of embarrassment and shame would arise, and to keep getting back up required sitting through the embarrassment. I learned to play the trumpet also when I was in my when I late 30s, a horrifying instrument. <laughs> and this is from a guy who can play the accordion as well. <laughs> to play a trumpet requires being able to sit with every degree of shame and discomfort <laughs> as people stare and uh, make clear their disapproval. <laughs> so, any skill you're going to learn for the rest of your life, unless you just happen to be really lucky and you're preternaturally gifted, but I don't really believe that happens anyway. Uh, unless, I, any skill you learn, let's put it this way, you're going to have to be able to sit through on discomfort. You're going to have to sit through feelings of suckitude. <laughs> Anytime we meet somebody new and we make a new friend, we have to sit through feelings of vulnerability because making a new friend requires not just talking about the weather. Eventually, talk, it requires us disclosing an emotional truth about ourselves and risking the other person not getting it, shaming, rejecting, feeling uncomfortable, abandoning us in certain ways or another. To make a new friend, we have to sit through discomfort. To help people, we have to be willing to be comfortable feeling and mirroring their emotions. Again, we have to be able to sit through difficult emotions. So the point, the gist of tonight's talk, what I'm getting to, is that all spiritual and human growth that leads to a better life requires one thing, and that is the ability to raise our tolerance for emotional discomfort. Most of us from childhood set our tolerance very, very, very low, and the moment we feel uncomfortable, embarrassed, ashamed, scared, confused, we give up. We give up on the new skill, the new friend, the new opportunity. We give up on our creative endeavors. We give up on everything that could widen our life because we've set our emotional tolerance level too low. So 
The key is to raise the emotional tolerance bar higher so that we can sit through more discomfort, which is going to be required of us as we grow and take important risks. It's interesting that the Buddha talks so often about being a spiritual warrior, about being willing to feel and turn towards discomfort was the foundation of his entire spiritual path. The first noble truth is there is suffering going to happen in life. There is suffering in these fields. (laughs) Anyway, the Buddha turns towards not just sickness and aging and death. He he said there's going to be sorrow, lamentation, frustration, not getting what we want. We're going to be separated from people we love and stuck with people we don't care about that much. And we're going to have to learn to deal with that if we're going to be spiritual practitioners. It's in the Salatha Sutta. It's in uh, another great sutta where he talks about the difference between uh, a wise spiritual person and somebody who is not wise is that a wise person knows they have to go through things that feel uncomfortable to get to new skills and new opportunities. It's in the numbered discourses, in the four numbered discourses. So we have to be able to raise our level of discomfort. So how do we do this? Well, I'm glad you asked. So there are four tools that I'm going to share with you for the low cost of 19... No, no. Uh, the first is the thing we did at the very beginning of this class. What did we do? We sat quietly and we meditated. Now, why is that important? Well, meditation, sitting quietly, after you've been running around trying to accomplish everything, meet all your obligations and responsibilities... And sitting still requires complete ability to sit with discomfort. Your mind and body will not like it. You will not want to suddenly come to a rest in life after you've been busy running a marathon of getting things done. To sit quietly and not move requires present time awareness. Because when people are not aware of what's going on, when they're lost in thought, if you watch them, you'll see that they fidget all the time. They move unconsciously, their hands, their legs, they keep shifting their position. But when people are truly aware, which sitting still requires, then they can begin to settle down the mind. Really, sitting, focusing on the breath, is one of the most unnatural things you can do. It's the greatest way to raise our level of emotional tolerance to a higher level. It's also the safest way to do it. Doing it on a skateboard kind of sucks. Okay, number two. The second thing is is to develop the skill of body mapping, which means the next time you find yourself caught up in anger... Uh, caught up in resentment, caught up, trapped 
by repeating story in your mind. When you're trapped in the mind, see if you can develop the occasional uh, skill of for a moment pulling your awareness into the body and just noticing what gets tense. What's getting tight? If you're angry, very often it'll be the shoulders and the, the jaw will lock. If you're wrapped up in fear, maybe the stomach will get tight. And the, or maybe you might feel activations in the back of the neck or in the forehead. If there's feelings of abandonment, maybe a hollowness in the chest. There's going to be specific areas of the body that articulate the, the feelings that you've been running away from. The goal here is to, when you're truly up in these thoughts that have been meant to pull you away from these activations, bring your awareness back again and again and again to the activation and be with it. It'll be difficult at first. But the more you can sit with the feelings and begin to create a safe container for them and allow them to express themselves, the less you'll be pulled away into those narrative structures that can repeat forever and trigger you again and again and again and again and again. If you want the discomfort to pass, the only way through is by keeping the body on the foundation of where it arises here. One thing that makes this practice possible is welcoming difficult emotions. And I do this very often either after an uncomfortable conversation or after a time I felt myself caught up in one of those minor addictive spirals, you know, sometimes when you find yourself on YouTube downloading or looking at videos that you don't need to look at, yes, I do that too, <laughs> or looking at something by BuzzFeed you don't really need to look at, <laughs> and I sit and I just ask, okay, what needs to be felt? If it's a difficult conversation I've had with somebody, I'll find some space I'll hold an image of them. I won't repeat the conversation. I'll hold the image and I'll bring awareness into the body and I'll just, again, see what needs attention. Sometimes I need to greet it with metta, which is phrases of kindness. I use the phrase, I care about you, I'll take care of you, because very often, early in life, feelings of abandonment I didn't feel as a child I could hold, so I immediately took flight from them. But as an adult, I can take care of these feelings. I can be with them. I can take care of myself. I can live through loneliness, sadness, frustration, despair. I can take care of myself, so I'm reassuring these feelings. It's okay. You're allowed. I'm not going to abandon you. I'll be there. I'll take care of you. Finally, <coughs> the final strategy is, unlike defense mechanisms which try to get rid of emotions, suppress them, and are not skillful, like taking drugs, getting high, drunk, shopping binges, uh, eating binges, trading sex for intimacy, etc., etc., 
coping strategies simply allow us to be with difficult emotions, but it makes the process a little easier by adding a feeling into it that's pleasant. So, for example, if we're feeling... I was talking to a guy who suffered a traumatic, horrible loss of somebody he was very close with, and he couldn't cry in his apartment. The tears wouldn't come. He couldn't process the grief there. But what he could do is he could go to the beach and lie in the sun and then weep for hours. Because adding that level of, of, of physical comfort allowed him to feel safe enough, allowed him to know that the feeling of grief couldn't completely overwhelm him. Simply by adding that one sensation of the sun and lying on the beach created the safety to be with a painful emotion. Well, that's quite an exclamation point. I lost a friend who uh, relapsed, heroin addict, shot dope like the second time he went out and died. Very, very close friend a few years ago. And crying was very difficult unless I was sitting in a comfortable chair with my cat. And then, boy, that's a sad picture, right? But, uh, but then I could weep and really get in touch because I had just enough anchors to know that the grief wouldn't be overwhelming. Um, sometimes it's just going to take a walk, pouring a warm bath, um, you know, sitting outside. Very often it's just getting outside of our apartments, which after all are just an extension of our minds, and creating another sensory input so that we, we feel that there's something present that will, so that we cannot be overwhelmed by the feelings as they arise. And feelings, especially repressed feelings, can be very, very painful as they express themselves. They can feel like waves of, of, of energy, or they can feel like contracted pain in the body. So to be present, very often it's very helpful to have a warm cup of tea or something that's there to give you a, sensual, a sensory anchor. So I feel that's enough for tonight. Just to summarize, um, it's really important to, if we want to be happy, to uh, to do things that are present time oriented like connect with other people and have meaningful work and to develop skills and all of these abilities rest upon raising our emotional tolerance for discomfort that's the only way we can truly connect with other people that's the only way we can do work that's truly healing if we want to raise our level for emotional discomfort we have to check in with the body we have to acknowledge the feelings quicker as they arise. We have to welcome difficult feelings and use coping strategies that will help us process grief, despair, sadness, anger. I thank you. Hope there was something worthwhile in there. So, if you are leaving now, if you could uh, help with the rent, as we're always struggling to pay that. Uh, any amount you throw in will be helpful. And 
migrated to in front of where the cushions and the um, okay, so questions, thoughts, anything about tonight's talk or the practice or Buddhist practice in general or anything you think I might be able to give a perspective? Hi. Hi. Um, I feel like this question is relating to... Um, Finding a way to hire that, that, that level of tolerance. Yeah. Which fits your own suffering and, uh, and thought pattern. Um, and since I find, I find that uh, I, I welcome that thought, I love, I love that thought, but uh, it, seems, it seems easier said than done. Um, my question is that in, in, a, in a self-destructive thought pattern, um, it seems that like trying to hire that standard seems like almost like it, just, it sounds impossible because I'm I'm already like getting down on myself and I'm being down. It seems like it's, it's like an opposite reaction. Do you have any uh, uh, suggestions or uh, um, advice on that? Well, what happens often is when we seek shelter from the. Uh, the um, feelings, we go into cycles of shame and blame. Shame ourselves, blame the other people. And in essence, we're trying to pin the fault of the thing we're feeling on ourself or on other people. And that's what creates really the bulk of the suffering. The process of, li- of raising your tolerance to discomfort is not meaning to continue listening to those stories. It means just being able to sit with the feelings themselves. And you'll find that if you can sit with the feelings as they express themselves in the body rather than listening to the stories of what a shit we are or what a shit other people are, if we focus just on the embodied, what the Buddha called Vedana, that actually it's generally not as difficult as actually the process or the entire experience is when we're listening to the stories. So I I think that it's maybe to make it clear, we're raising the tolerance to feelings in the body. It's not about, it's about pulling awareness away from the stories, the, the judgments, the criticism, all of the things you say yourself in words were just, okay, you're there, and we're pulling awareness back into the body, into the body, into the body. And that's, you'll find, will actually be easier. It won't require more. Because when we're trying to push down emotional pain and we're yelling at ourselves, that's truly miserable. But when we pull, push that away, we should say, okay, I know you're there, but I'm just going to focus again and again what's being felt in the body. That's something that you can tolerate. It's a great question. And basically, there's two kinds of um, uh, emotions. There's reactive emotions that are just based on the events that are happening around you and are in no way based on... Um, connections with deeper, suppressed, repressed emotions from the past. 
So for instance, um, sometimes you sit down, you hear a loud sound, and you have like an, an irritation. And that's the kind of activation that I generally am in favor of relaxing. So it's an, it's an emotional reaction that has no connection with uh, a history of repressed material. Now, on the other hand, there are times in life where, many, many times in life, where something that we've suppressed, we've not allowed ourselves to feel in the past, comes up. It's triggered by a conversation. It's triggered by an event. But the reaction we have is so uncomfortable that we, we, we seek the shelter entirely of our thoughts or of addictions or of avoidance strategies. Generally, when it's simply a react, a present time reaction emotion, you're not going to get lost in thoughts of spiraling rumination. You won't be pushed towards Facebook. You won't be, it'll just be an irritation that arises. And what we're trying to do then is simply relax the body. But when there's a strong activation, it means there's something historical that we suppressed that's now reaching up, we'll know it not only because of the, the compulsion to escape, that's one way to know, but another way we'll know is where we feel it. Reactions to present time events tend to be felt on the outside of the body. They might be in the shoulders a little bit, in the arms, maybe sometimes in the jaw, but they're, you know, there's, they're just more about a... But, the deeper emotions that we want to allow to play out and we don't want to get rid of, we want to give them their moment in the sun, they're going to be held here in the belly, they're going to be in the chest, they're going to be in the throat, they're going to be in the core central organs that you know are involved with digestion and uh, breathing. Why is that? Because when we're activated, the autonomic nervous system tends to control digestion, breath, vagal uh, actions. And when we're suppressing, it tends to, the, what we tend to do is clamp down. So those, one of those things gets activated. And when we feel an old emotion, we'll often feel it in these core, you know, very basic organs of the body, in the center part of the torso. If it's in the arms or just this fidgetiness, then relax it. But if it's, you know, or if it's just like a tightness in the face, you know, that can just be from something that's happened during the day. You might have had a very busy day with a lot of responsibilities. Very often, you know, the muscles in the back of the neck, if we've been sitting in front of a computer working and not really emotionally activated, just stressed by how much we have on our plate, those muscles will become tense and simply relaxing them will help. But if it's a very old emotion, anyway, just encouraging it to relax won't work. Right. When it's a thought, suppose you're having a, a rumination about... Um, ruminations are generally stories about unpleasant interactions with other people, often breakups or, you know, family members, unpleasant interactions that we replay in the mind. And the reason we ruminate is to not feel the actual feelings of the sadness in the chest or in the belly. So we ruminate. And so the key is to label, oh, thinking. It's all right. You can be there. You don't even need to disperse it. But just bring 
the spotlight of your awareness down into the physical sensations of the body and find, the Buddha talked about this in the um, Vitaka Santana Sutta, he said when you know an obtrusive thought that's playing out again and again, just note it and then find what's tense beneath it. So see if you can find that, that hidden muscle clenching and it'll be there. Whenever there's an obsessive thought, there's always a shadow of it in the body. And the quicker you can find that shadow and pay attention to that shadow and give it a safe space, then the obsessive story will become less powerful. Because the obsessive story is there because it doesn't believe that you can safely hold the emotion. It's trying to rescue you. It feels that if you allow the emotion to express yourself, you'll be taken over, consumed, you'll suffer miserably. That's why we develop these little ruminations. The moment it sees, oh, she's going to sit with that loneliness or that frustration or that sadness, that thought will naturally then completely evaporate because you're, you're just being with it. And you're not getting rid of the feeling, you're just opening to it. Does that make sense?